What a privilege to come into your presence, that you, the King of the universe, would want to hear our voices, to hear our songs, that you delight in the prayers of your people, as you say, and that you have given us the Bible that reveals so much about who you are, your character of love. And God, today, I ask that your word would speak to our hearts. I ask that that people would walk out of here today with something from you, that, that their eyes would be directed a little bit higher to a little bit more of Jesus, and that, that you would impact our walk with you, that we could really walk more closely with you. Lord, the, the times are desperate. We see it all around us, and, and we just long to rest more completely and fully in your saving love. Would you do that in our hearts this morning? For your honor and your glory, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It wasn't supposed to end that way. In fact, it was so dramatic to me as, as the world came crumbling down around me. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, going to the bathroom, and I was so physically sick that I was vomiting into the toilet. And as I'm attempting to vomit, and pretty soon there's nothing less to vomit, I didn't have a virus. I didn't have a bacterial infection. It wasn't the stomach flu. But my world had come crashing down. And that had made me physically sick. Have you ever felt that way? You feel like, hey, this isn't the way things are supposed to happen. Things have been going along. It feels great. This is just the way it's supposed to be. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, everything falls apart. That's the way I felt that morning. But you know, if you read in the Bible, and we were just to pick up this story that we've been looking at, this is exactly what we see in the story of the flood. Now, we, we've talked about how God was so reluctant when it came to the flood, that, that he was grieved, that his, his heart mourned over the people, that, that his spirit was striving. Do you remember how long it says that his spirit was striving with people? For 120 years. And this is such a beautiful thing. If you look at the name Methuselah, it means when he dies, it will come. If you look at the Hebrew, literally what Methuselah means, and you add up the genealogy to look at when Methuselah died, he died in the year of the flood. So it's not just 120 years. Methuselah had been a prophecy, and even just his name, he lived 969 years. The man who lived the longest died the year that the flood came. Does that say something about who God is? Let's say something about how awesome his saving grace, he longs for it to be in our lives, that his spirit does whatever it takes to strive in our hearts, to work in our hearts, until there's somebody who's willing to accept his grace. In fact, comparing the same story in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that the Lord isn't slow about his promise, but he's just not willing that any should be lost. So if you were wondering this morning if that includes you, I think you're a part of any. If you're wondering if that includes your new neighbor next door, that person down the street, God is striving with the people on this planet, longing for people to come into contact with him. But we see in the story that the earth was becoming more and more filled with violence, and that even God's holy people who were calling on the Lord, who were walking with him, they were beginning to mingle in such a way that their own faith, their righteous faith in God was beginning to become defiled. And they too were becoming corrupted. Corrupted in that they were no longer looking to Jesus. They were no longer walking with Jesus. And we saw just two weeks ago that what was it for Noah that enabled him to be the one that God chose to, to bring salvation for the planet, to offer salvation? You remember what it was? What did Noah do? What practical thing did Noah do? 
He built an ark. So we talked about last week. But what enabled God to give him the plan to build the ark? Do you remember what it was? See, this always helps to humble the speaker because you realize two weeks from now you may not remember what I say today. You know, the most successful thing about a sermon I'm learning is that if you walk out of here and you go and you read the stories for yourself, you dive into it. If you study the Bible for yourself and forget what I say, I'm okay with that. But if you hear what I say and you follow Jesus, then, then we're good to go. Well, anyway, Noah walked with God. That's the whole point of, of I believe it's in Genesis chapter 6, but it says that Noah was perfect in his generations. He was righteous. Noah walked with God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because Noah was walking with God. He had that personal relationship, that personal connection. And then last week we talked about how God shut him into that ark that he built and how as he went about building that ark, it was to be a, a type of a sanctuary. It's the first time where we see this building that, that the language is used similar to when the sanctuary was built and that we too are called in this time to build a relationship with Jesus that we can find a refuge in in the times of trouble that are coming on this planet. But today we're going to dive in and we're going to see what takes place now that Noah's on the ark, seven days he's on the ark. In fact, it emphasizes it twice. It says he got on the ark and he was there for seven days and then seven days, it says again later on. So it's repeating this seven-day cycle, which will become important later on as we look a little bit deeper at this chapter. But let's pick it up. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. And we're going to be flipping back and forth. So if you want to turn in your Bible between Genesis 7 and Genesis chapter 1. There's, there's Bibles in front of you in the pew if you didn't bring one this morning. And I'll have a lot of the verses on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11. We're going to skip down partway into the verse. And it says this. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Can you imagine what that moment was like? We're told in the creation that... that there was an expanse that was created. There were waters above the earth. There was waters uh, under the earth. There was this, this intricate watering system on the planet where it says mist would arise and it would water the planet. There didn't have to be rain that fell, but there was water. There was a, a beautiful sprinkler system on the planet that was designed by God. And this tells us that that is broken up. All the fountains of the great deep were broken and the windows of heaven were open, but it gets worse. It goes on, well, first... I mean, if you look at it, you think about this position that Noah's in at this point. All chaos is breaking around him. And really, what is this describing as you look at this? The fountains of the great deep are broken up. The windows of heaven are coming down. I like what it says uh, in the, the new, it's a, it's a Bible commentary that's just coming out. It's the SDA International Bible Commentary. Jacques Dukan is a professor at Andrews University. I actually took Hebrew from him. A, a brilliant man. But he says this. The eruption of water obeys the principle of reversing the work of creation in Genesis 1. So as this eruption of water from beneath and eruption of water from above, he says this in language is describing the exact reversal of what was happening in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the planet in the first place. You know, as, as God is, is re- sorry, it, it, the word is nakam, right? He's repentant for having created mankind as, as, he is basically withdrawing those principles that sustain life on this planet. And the waters are crashing down from above and they're coming up 
from beneath. It says, while in Genesis 1, creation involved the separation of the waters above from the waters below, the advent of the flood involves the exact opposite. Those things are coming crashing together in this space where all creatures are living on the planet. Their reunification, since they are no longer maintained within with, the, sorry, let's go back here a second. Okay, the advent of the flood involves the exact opposite, their reunification, they're coming together, since they are no longer maintained within their borders. We are back to the stage of pre-creation. And just look at, look at how it's described. Verse 18 says, The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. There's water everywhere. It goes on to describe in verse 19, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. If, if you've ever questioned in your mind, is the Bible describing a literal worldwide flood? I'd love to share some resources with you that even secular scholars will look at this and they'll say, look, whether or not we believe that there was a literal flood like that, the author believes that. And I believe that all scripture is inspired by God. And, and as you read this, there can be no doubt that there is a literal worldwide flood, which helps us when we look at all the scientific evidence around us that can be confusing on the planet today. If we were to have in mind a global flood, it would help. But that is a topic for another time. Verse 20 goes on to say, it says, the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. I mean, above the highest mountains. Now at this time, you remember, Plates have been shifting and things like that. So it doesn't mean that it was above Mount Everest necessarily, but Mount Everest probably wasn't as high at that time. So it was above whatever highest mountains there were at the time. 15 cubits, which is about 22 feet, and it's covering the entire planet. There is water everywhere. Now look at what Genesis 1 describes about the planet. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So before God created in the first place, it's very similar to what this is like as Noah's ark is there floating on that sea. Can you imagine being Noah? Here you are. All you have is water. It says that all flesh under heaven is being destroyed, that there's no, no, no creatures left alive on the planet except for you, your seven family members, and a two of every unclean creature and seven of every clean creature that are packed there on your little boat that's been shut in by God. You know, on the one hand, they could be happy that they have life. But on the other hand, what use is life when the planet is back to this stage? When all there is is water everywhere. It's just formless and void. There's there's no place for these land-living and air-dwelling creatures to live. It's kind of a hopeless situation. And this morning, I want you to apply this to your life. Maybe you feel like you're in a hopeless situation this morning. Maybe things have crashed down around you. Maybe you feel like... You know, I don't see where the way up is from here. It just feels like I've gone down as far as I can go and and there's no hope. That's how I felt in the middle of the night, in the bathroom, feeling like I lost everything. I lost a relationship. I was giving up on everything else at that point as far as my schooling, uh, the business that I was interested in. It just felt like none of it mattered anymore. My friendships were probably going to come to an end. I felt like nothing mattered anymore. Noah is there on the boat and he's just surrounded by water. There is a formlessness, a voidness about the planet once again. It has returned to its pre-creation state. But we read at the beginning, what did it say about God? What did God, where was God during the flood? Psalm 29.10 says that the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. 
the, the Lord promises there to give peace and strength to his people. God is king, and God is king because he is our creator. That's one of the reasons that he is our king. And just look at what takes place in the flood story. So I want to call this creation 2.0. Let's, let's refresh in our minds a little bit what happens on the days of creation, and we'll compare that to what takes place in the flood story. Okay, so Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 is really the climax of the whole story. Uh, if you read through Genesis chapter 8, scholars will tell you that the, 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 the crucial line of the entire story is, is this line right here. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. They're in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of everything. Creation has fallen apart. It's broken apart, it seems. That is the worst possible situation that you can be on, in on the planet. Worse than anything that anybody here is, today is facing. And in that moment, God remembered Noah. And in your moments of chaos, God remembers you. God looks down and he says, there's my child. Just hope in me. Look to me because I am in the business of making new creations out of old creations. We look at what God does, continuing in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now this is really exciting, because that word there, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, the word in Hebrew is ruach, R-U-A-C-H, if you're going to do it in English. Ruach, which, fascinatingly enough, when the, the earth is formless and void, it says this, in Genesis 1.28, and the Spirit of God, one chapter two, chapter one, verse two, sorry, at the end of the verse, it says, and the Spirit, Ruach, of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. God remembers Noah and he sends a wind to dry out the planet. And we're suddenly reminded of the creation story where God's Spirit was hovering over this darkness in this void planet. So we see day one, God sent a wind over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. What happened on day number 2 of creation? Does anybody remember? We'll review it in just a second, but let's look at what happens in the flood story. Genesis chapter 8 verse 2 continues, and it says, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. So we have the heavens are pouring down, the fountains of the deep are coming up, and then it suddenly says God steps back in, he again puts those boundaries back in place. He holds the heavenly rain back and he puts his hand down to, to he again restrains the, the water that's coming up from the earth. So look at what happens in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 7. This is on day 2 of creation. It says, Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. That's what God first did in creation. He sent his spirit over the waters and he said, let there be light. Interestingly enough, we don't see that here, but light wasn't extinguished. Light was still there, right? So, but here you see that God sends his spirit. And what happens when this, the wind is sent over the waters, the, the water keeps, stops coming down from above. And the water stops coming up from underneath. So we see the division of waters just like day two of creation. What happened on day three of creation? Does anybody remember? It's okay. I didn't tell you to review this beforehand, but... Day three of creation. Let's look at what happens in the flood story. Genesis chapter eight and verse five. It says, and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. 
Okay, this is exciting. The wind is blowing, but up until this point, the waters are just separated again, and there's just water there, but all of a sudden, the Bible tells us, land begins to appear. The tops of the mountains begin to pop up around Noah. Oddly enough, if you look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the, what does it say? The dry land appear, and it was so. Does anybody else remember what, or do you remember what else happened on day three of creation? The dry land appeared, and what went with the dry land? The plants began to come up. Genesis chapter 1 verse 11 says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields the seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. Do you remember what Noah does once the ark comes to rest on the mountains and the the mountains are beginning to appear? What does he begin to do? He first sends out a raven. And this raven, it says it flies about and flies around and doesn't really help Noah out. So then it says he gets a clean bird, a dove, and he sends the dove out. And the dove flies around and comes back and he realizes that there's, even though the mountains are beginning to pop up, there's no habitable land. So he waits seven days and he sends the dove out again. Remember, it was seven days and it's repeated twice, uh, leading to being on the ark. So here you have seven days and he sends the dove out again. There's this weekly cycle that's being mentioned here. He sends the dove out again and, and you remember what happens with the dove that time. The dove flies around and he comes back and this time he has a freshly plucked olive leaf in his beak. Now Noah knows that not only is dry land appeared, but the plants are also beginning to come up too. And he knows that the earth is being dried out. He has hope that the God of peace is beginning to again restore and rebuild creation. We see that in verse 11. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Let's keep going. Day four. Does anybody remember what happened on day four of creation? The sun, the moon, and the stars. So you're going to be like, okay, faster. I may not be super familiar with Noah's story, but I know that God didn't create the sun, moon, and stars for Noah again, because you just can't tell me that. You're right, I won't. But check out what happens. You imagine that they've been on this boat, and they're on this boat in total before they get off of it for about a year. Up to this point, I think they're about 150 days, I have to look at it again, about shy of being on the boat for an entire year. They've been sealed in that entire time. How much of the sun do you think that the animals could see? How much of the sun do you think that the, the, the um, rest of his family could see? There's one small window that he lets the birds out of. He probably couldn't see the stars all during that time. They weren't, wouldn't be able to see the moon. But the very next thing that happens in the story, watch this. This is really exciting. Uh, we'll skip over this because we just said uh, that the sun, moon, and stars are going to appear. But 8 verse 13 says this, And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. He removes the covering on the boat. And what's going to happen after that? Now for the remainder of time, which they're still on the boat for a bit longer, Day in and day out, they're going to see the sunrise and the sunset. They're going to see the stars come up. They're going to see the moon go through its cycles. They're going to have a restored vision of the sun, moon, and stars. Okay, so what happened on day five of creation? 
the birds and the fish were created. God spoke and created the, the birds and the fish. So we look in Genesis 8 and verse 17. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you. And the first thing that he mentions is the birds. And then he goes on to mention the other creatures. And then he says this, which is exactly what happens at the end of the fifth day of creation in Genesis chapter 1. He says, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God's wanting for us, I mean, he's quoting directly from back in Genesis chapter 1. This is exactly where that, that phrase first comes up in the creation story. Before he's even telling man to do this, he's telling the birds to be fruitful and multiply. So we're seeing day five taking place. Then we go on to day six. Genesis 8, verse 18 says, So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. So you have humans coming out of the boat. Every animal, verse 19 continues, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. You remember how in the creation story it says, according to their kinds they were created. Each of, each of the animals was created according to their kind. So now we have man on the planet, we have humans on the planet, and we're seeing day six taking place. The deliverance of animals and humans. But really it's more than that. If you were to keep reading in this story and you look down, you would see some other things that take place. Because God goes ahead and he blesses Man again, and he says, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. But not only that, right after that, he goes on to tell them that I'm giving you food of every plant, and also I'm going to allow you to eat the clean animals that came from the ark. So he he does the exact same thing that in Genesis chapter 1, after God creates man, he creates animals first, then he creates man, then he blesses man, he tells him to be fruitful and multiply, then he tells him in Genesis, I believe it's one twenty-eight. he says, here's or, or verse uh, 29, that I'm going to give you every seed-bearing plant as your food. But not just that, do you remember, in, it was one twenty-eight where he says, I want you to fill the earth, I want you to have dominion over the planet. And really the flood took place, we saw, because the, the planet had been corrupted through man's bad choices. And God is again restoring to Noah this opportunity to have dominion over the planet because he promises them that all flesh, all the beasts that he's taking off, they're going to be afraid of you, and I have given them into your hands. God is very intentionally bringing a recreation in the midst of chaos. He's wanting to give planet Earth a redo another opportunity. He's giving another chance for life to go on on this planet. It goes on to say, look, don't kill human beings. If you kill a human being, your life will be required. Whoever kills, their life will be required. And then he describes why that is in the same language that's used when it says, let us create man in our image. It goes on to say, well, don't kill a human being because he's created in the image of God. You know, this is so intentional. When you read this, if, if we're steeped in the creation story and we read through this, we can have no doubt that day one is happening, day two is happening, day three is happening, day four is happening, not in 24 little periods, or 24 hour literal periods. But God is intentionally bringing a recreation to this planet. And that is why you can worship God this morning in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the chaos, when it looks like your world is formless and void. It's just a raging sea around you. You can go ahead and worship the king because he can create out of nothing. 
He can take the mess of your life, the shambles of your life, and He can build something so incredibly beautiful out of it. I know that for a fact because it's been my own experience. And I know that from looking at this story as I see what takes place in the life of Noah. And, and we could go on. We could look at more things as we go through the story of Noah. I mean, it's so clear that this is a reflection directly on the story of Genesis chapter 1, the creation. Because once Noah comes out, we're told that he becomes a man of the earth, a farmer, which is a play on words for Adam, the name Adam. And then you know what he does? He becomes a farmer and he plants a vineyard. God gave to Adam and Eve a vineyard in the garden. And what did God, I mean, not a vineyard, gave them the garden of Eden and Noah plants a vineyard. So what did what happened with Adam and Eve in their garden that caused them to lose paradise? They ate the forbidden fruit. If you read the story, and if you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, it's fascinating. So pick up your Bible, read Genesis 7 through Genesis 9. But Noah, he plants his vineyard, and then he lets his grapes rot. He takes his wine that's now rotten grapes. He drinks it. He becomes drunk in his tent. And then suddenly there's this story. So, so he takes what we might say is forbidden fruit. And you might think, that's a little stretch. Is that really forbidden fruit? Is that really what we're supposed to understand from this? Well, what happened after Adam and Eve ate the fruit? What was the very next thing that they experienced? How did they feel? Separated from God. And that was physically like they felt naked. They felt naked. Noah gets drunk and he's laying in his tent and the Bible tells us that he's laying there naked and that Ham comes to his brothers and says, ah, you should see Noah, our dad. He's there in the tent and he's naked. He's drunk. Come guys, come look at this. So Adam and Eve, they were naked after they ate the forbidden fruit. Noah's naked in his tent in a shameful way after having drunk the wine from his own vineyard. And what happens with Adam and Eve? What do they do when they find out that they're naked? They cover themselves first, and then they do hide. Shem and Japheth don't go running and looking like Ham, but they take a, a, a robe, and somehow they walk backwards so they don't see Noah, and they cover his shameful nakedness so that it can be covered. And then you have in the story in, in Genesis 1, and there's so many parallels, but you have God coming into the garden, and he gives them both the curses to let them know what their choices are going to result in on the planet. And the blessing to say, I am sending a savior who's going to crush the serpent. You can count on that. Noah immediately goes to his sons and he gives a curse to Ham and his descendants, Canaan. And he gives a blessing to Shem and Japheth. You see throughout this story that, that God is revealing to us that he's in the business of not just creating the first time, but of bringing recreation out of chaos, of bringing new life out of a mess, of taking a violent-filled planet, and, and he can recreate it. Because it's on the one hand that we could think about, well, of course God could create to begin with, but you don't know what my heart is like. You don't know the selfishness that's there. You don't know the anger that I have. You don't know how jealous I am of people. You don't know how much hatred there is. In my, you don't know the hurt and the pain that's in my heart. How could God ever do anything with that? But I read in my Bible that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, that he is a new creation. That the old is gone 
and the new has come. But it gets even better. Because as we read through this story, we skipped over something, didn't we? We got days one through six mirrored in creation, but we skipped what happens next after uh, we see the blessing, we see the image of God, we see humans on the planet. Look at what takes place in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 9. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. We looked at last week that the very first time that that word covenant, which is promise, which is the, the whole theme of scripture is God making a promise and God fulfilling that promise. That's, that's, if you were to sum up the Bible, that's what you look at it as, is God makes a promise and God fulfills that promise. So he's told Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And now he's saying, as for me, behold, I'm establishing my covenant. I made a covenant. I made a promise with you before you went on that boat. And now that I'm giving you this recreated planet with all of these blessings, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And it goes on to say uh, down in verse 11, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again Will there be a flood to destroy the earth? So this is my promise. You don't have to worry about this same experience happening again. I am going to provide salvation for you. And just in case you're, you're going to be a little worried about this, can you imagine that a few days after being off the ark, a thunderstorm comes. The lightning begins to crack. The thunder's rolling. The raindrops begin to fall. Can you imagine the sheer terror that would be in your heart having just gone through the flood? I mean, talk about PTSD. Noah should have had it. I mean, yeah, God saw him through, but, but that's a tough thing to handle. The, the raindrops begin to fall. And so God says this to him in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign. You don't just have to take it on faith, but I'm giving you this sign. And this is the sign of the covenant, which I have made between you and me and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You can know that this promise is true. You can stand steadfast in the midst of a storm as the raindrops are falling again. You can look up and see the light shining through those raindrops and see that beautiful rainbow. I mean, is there anything more beautiful than than a rainbow? Maybe you can think of something, but it is an incredible natural phenomenon on this planet. And God says, I have established this. I've set it up. So that the very thing that brought judgment, the raindrops in your life, those very things will begin to shine and reveal to you my mercy and my glory and my beauty. That I have made a covenant with you. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember. And again, when it, when it talks about remembering, when it says he remembered Noah, when it says that he'll remember his covenant, this is human language. God's trying to describe how he's going to direct his mind towards us. It's not like God ever forgets something or forgets you. The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Not only does he make it with humankind, but he makes it with all animals. He cares about his creation and he's recreated it and he makes this beautiful sign in the heaven. So here's the thing. If it is so clear that Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six are mirrored in the story of Genesis. What should come next in the story of Genesis? The seventh day. 
So what happens with the seventh day? We don't see a rainbow. This is a beautiful rainbow. In fact, it's hard to find beautiful rainbows on the internet, just for the record. There's, it's, it's better in person, let's put it that way. I even had some on my phone that it just, you can't capture a rainbow like you can when you're there in person. But day seven, we see a sign of the covenant happening in Noah's story, and we see the same exact thing happening in Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two, in fact, let's just go there in my Bible, in your Bible, because I don't have it up on the screen here. Genesis chapter two. Verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. When it says in Genesis chapter 9, this is the sign of the covenant, this beautiful rainbow, There's only two other times that the sign of the covenant is used. And there's only one time that it's used when talking about the heavens and the earth. And that's in Genesis chapter 31, verse 16. It says, Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And verse 17, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. It says, based on creation, here's a gift to you. It's a sign of the covenant. It's my, my promise to you. What exactly is it a promise of? We go back a few verses and look at verse 13. It says this, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Okay, friends, this is, this is exciting. And I'm not seeing it written on your faces. That's what's getting me a little worried here. Right. Let's read that last line again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do this. Have you stand up here, okay? I'm going to have you stand up. And we're going to start with that you may know, and we're going to read this. And you're like, really? Are we back in school? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. That you may know. I don't hear anybody reading. You ready? One, two, three. That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You can sit back down. This is incredibly beautiful. This is saying that that the seventh-day Sabbath, what it's all about is that God created the heavens and the earth, and God will recreate you in the image of God. The Sabbath isn't about what we do. The Sabbath is about what He is able to do. The King who sat enthroned at at the flood, the one who could recreate a damaged planet, the one who can only recreate your heart, says, I'm giving you this gift. And this gift... It's for you to take time with me so that you and I can get to know each other to such an extent that you can experience my recreative power in your life. This is the sign of the covenant. The good news, the promise is. And friends, it's far more beautiful than the most beautiful rainbow you've ever seen. God, every single week, gives you 24 hours to celebrate and worship Jesus. He gives you 24 hours where you don't have to worry about the lawn. You don't have to worry about cleaning the house. You don't have to worry about the work to earn money. But you can focus on Jesus and the things that Jesus cares about, like helping other people. Those are the only two things that really matter. Worshiping God 
and loving people. You can set every other worry aside. You can set every other entertainment aside and you can focus on Jesus on this day. If we want to walk with God, if we want to know God, there is nothing more beautiful and more powerful than the seventh day Sabbath. It's a time period where we can come and we can rejoice in who God is. You know, if you read through the rest of the Bible, the rainbow becomes this beautiful and important thing. You read through as in Ezekiel chapter 1, when it describes God in all of His glory, it's a throne room description. And then it says there's an angel. The, the glory around the throne, it, the glory, sorry, not an angel, the glory around the throne appeared just like a rainbow. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3 says that around the throne in heaven was a rainbow that was like an emerald in appearance. This glistening, beautiful thing. So when God sat enthroned at the flood, as he's looking out, I believe the Bible tells me that he's looking through a rainbow. As he looks at you on a day-to-day basis, when you're going through the midst of your trials, it tells me in my Bible that his throne is surrounded with a rainbow and he sees you through the grace and the mercy that he's longing to bestow on you based on his covenant, based on his faithfulness. I mean, that's what the Sabbath is really all about. It's about God's faithfulness to accomplish the work in us. He's the one that sanctifies us or makes us holy like God. And God is love and he wants to instill that same love in your heart from the very springs of your heart. If we look in, sorry, I think I lost it there somehow. If you look in your Bible at Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, we see this picture of what God does on the Sabbath, and we see how easy it is to miss it. This will be the last verse that we look at, Luke chapter 23. The disciples have witnessed the most horrific moment in their lives. For them, they're a little bit feeling like Noah on the ark, as he's looking out at the water, wondering, is God going to be able to restore this? Is there any hope of... They've just buried their Savior in the tomb. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 56, it says, Then they returned, prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. They're heartbroken during this day. They're, they're mourning during this day. But Jesus, in that moment, was still king. Though he was lying in a tomb, though he wouldn't go to ascend to his father until Sunday, he rested on the seventh day even after being crucified on the cross. And it's that accomplishment of your death on your behalf for the sins that we have committed that that result in death. That accomplishment is the ultimate reason to worship God on the Sabbath. To worship Jesus because He has paid it all for you. He has gone through the absolute limits and exceeded the punishment of anything that was that you were guilty of. And you can rely on a Savior on the seventh day Sabbath. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. What we need more than anything else is Jesus. And we need to look to the Savior, to the rainbow of His covenant to remember that incredible promise that He's given to you. I want to invite Leo to come forward, Leonard to come forward here and share with us just briefly an experience in his own life when things were shattered and broken and 
felt like things weren't going so well. But you can tell us a little bit more about that and what God did to relieve you in that moment. Um, I d- decided to become a Christian. And, um, is it on? It's on. And, uh, and uh, for you people in the service, we're in a war. You know, we're behind enemy lines. And uh, God has promised to save us. And because he's promised to save us, Satan has come on us with full-on attack. So we're in the trenches. We're behind enemy lines, and he's promised to save us. And one morning, um, you know, my, my upbringing was pretty normal. My uh, mom was a drug addict and an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad got murdered when I was 14. You know, it's pretty normal upbringing. And um, <laughs> um, Satan uses that to discourage us, to um, to make us give up hope. Mm. But um, one morning was especially bad. I was coming up to church. And over the church, as I came around right that corner right there, the sun was just coming up about 9 o'clock in the morning, and there's this amazing rainbow right over this church from one side to the other side. I didn't stop and take a picture of it. I didn't want to get whacked on the freeway, but but I did take a picture of it out in the parking lot. And Sam was here. He was here. He saw it and uh, that day. And that was a, it's God's promise to save us. And the beautiful thing is that in the time of Noah, what did the birds and the animals and the uh, men, humans have to promise God in return? Nothing. They just simply received the promise. And we don't have to, you know, you know, we just have to believe that God has promised to us. And there's a, and there's a lot of people that leave this church because, you know, they, they, they promise God that they're going to do something. Oh, I'm going to do something good. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, and that's the focus is all off. It's God's promise to us. Our job is to believe it. Man, that's what the, the rainbow is all about. Thank you for sharing that personal story. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. It's a sign, a symbol that you can never forget. That God is the one who accomplishes the work. You can rest in that reality. You can rest in Him. And you can literally get to know Him on that day. That night as I was there throwing up in the toilet, feeling like my world had crashed down. I felt like schooling was done for me. I didn't want to go back to the same school. I thought that I lost the friendships that I was going to have. I felt like the business that I was working with, what's the point in that? I felt like I didn't really want to go on. I remember beginning to listen to this particular song. I began to listen to the old rugged cross over and over and over again. And as I began to think about Jesus and His saving grace, new hope began to rise in my own life. And it was out of the ashes of the most difficult time in my life, which I have shared a little bit about before, when my girlfriend of three and a half years that begging me to marry her finally pulled the plug and was off with another guy. In that moment, I felt like I lost everything. But in that moment, God was in the business of recreating everything to give me the life that he knew was far better. And this morning, God wants to make you a new creation. It wasn't but two months 
or less later that I met Leah and got to work with her for an entire year doing ministry. We got married and fast forward another 11 years and we have beautiful little girls and God has a hope and a future plan for you. For those who are in Christ Jesus are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And the symbol of that that we've been given today is the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's an incredible reminder of what Jesus has done for us and will do for us. You know, if you go outside and it's raining today, um, which won't happen, (laughs) but if you were in Hawaii, let's say, and the sun was shining and it was raining, you think you could still see a rainbow today? But Jesus died on the cross. There's still rainbows? Does he, wasn't the covenant done away with on the cross? Or do rainbows still appear? Is there still value and beauty in what God has promised to us and what he will fulfill for us based on the cross of Jesus Christ? Revealed through the rainbow and revealed through the seventh day Sabbath. This morning, I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. And as you bow your heads, I just want to give you an opportunity between you and Jesus to specifically ask him to help you to walk more closely with him during the Sabbath hours. He's given you this incredible holiday, these 24 hours that come each and every week that are, are more beautiful than the most majestic rainbow. And I'll be honest, sometimes I get distracted from that. Sometimes my focus is it's not on Jesus like I long it to, for it to be. But I'm thankful that His Spirit is striving with my heart and your heart this morning. So just, just ask Him to make the Sabbath more special for you. Ask Him if there's anything specific that He wants to lead you to do so that you can experience the blessing and the beauty of relationship with Him on the Sabbath more than you've ever experienced it before. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the incredible gift that you've given us. God, we don't have to be scared when the the rains come because we see the rainbow. We know that there's a a promise-keeping God. And Father, may we see the same beauty, the same value in the Sabbath. May we see that just like we can't find that pot of gold at the bottom of the rainbow, there's, there's not much we can do to make the Sabbath better, but, but we can experience it. We can soak in its beauty. We can enjoy Jesus on that day. Oh, Father, I pray that you would lead us to love you more fully, to take time in your word, to take time in prayer, and to love others more fully on that day. Lord, may we appreciate the value of the Sabbath. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.